We're looking at the Psalms, Advent in the Psalms. So turn in your Bibles if you have one. Hopefully you do. Psalm 25. There are Bibles in the back. Pew Bible is 261. I'm going to read the Psalm to you. Um, we're in Psalm 25. Uh, next week we'll be in Psalm 40, then Psalm 72, Psalm 80, and then Christmas Eve evening 98. So Psalm 25, Psalm 40, Psalm 72, Psalm 80, and then Psalm 98. So be reading those Psalms. If you want to text me or email me, uh, Facebook, wherever, I could give that to you. Be reading the Psalms as, you, as we're preparing for the Advent. We're talking, uh, be looking at the Psalms and uh, Advent in the Psalms. So that's where we'll be uh, this next five uh, sermons, four weeks. So let me read to you Psalm 25, and then we'll dismiss the kids. So hear the very word of God. Should have had it ready, right? Psalm 25. I got something else I wanted to read, but okay. Hear the very word of God, Psalm 25. If you have a Bible from the back, it's on page 261. To you, O Lord, and, and just try to try to enter into by the by the power of the Spirit and what David is is writing, and, and see Psalms is such an emotional book. It's a, it's a, it's a great book. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. Indeed. None who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your path. Lead me in your truth. And teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from old. Remember not the sins of my youth, all my transgressions, according to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. For those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being. His offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. And he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord. For he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me. And be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. We just sang about that. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Verse 19. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Kids, you're dismissed for Children's Church. We are in Psalm 25. Psalm 25 and the other Psalms we'll be looking at over the next few weeks are associated with the Advent season, and it's our hope as a church, as a church family, to go through the Psalms together each week as we prepare for the celebration, the season of Advent, and the celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ on Christmas Eve, here as a gathering, and then Christmas morning, of course, with your families. In some ways, the Psalms 
or like any other Old Testament book that points to the person and work of Jesus. In fact, the entirety of the Bible, I know this may shock you, is not about you. It's about Christ, redemption. God is always the hero. His redemptive plan goes way back to the Garden of Eden, which was spoken of uh, minutes ago, uh, on how God spoke in the midst of sin and shame and promised the Savior that uh, someone would come, and, and though he would be wounded, he would ultimately crush the head of our enemy, Satan. And the people of God are waiting for this. The people of God have always been waiting, anticipating this promised one, and his name is Jesus Christ. In fact, in Luke, uh, after Jesus rose from the dead, he was eating with his disciples. And Luke chapter 2, he says to them, these are the words I've spoken while I was still with you, that everything written about me, Jesus speaking, me, in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms might be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand scripture and he says, it is written that the Christ should suffer and die, talking about his death, and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. It'll begin in Jerusalem, the day of Pentecost, and it'll go out to the whole world. That's why you're here, because of that day. Yet the Psalms themselves as a book speak to us in a very beautiful and very rich way about Jesus Christ. The Psalms, actually the book of Psalms is quoted in the New Testament more than any other book in the Old Testament, any other book than the Old Testament books. It's speaking about in the New Testament quoted, going back to the Old Testament of Psalms. It speaks uniquely about Christ, his kingship, his suffering, his, his resurrection, his salvation, his messianic kingdom, all in the book of Psalms. Many of the Psalms written by King David, we see King David pouring out his heart of his, of this, of his suffering, we'll see that today, and his, and his and emotional condition and circumstances, situations going on. And many times it's not only talking about David, but it's looking beyond David to the true and better king, the Messiah, Jesus. Two things I want to point out because I just can't help myself about Psalms. <laughs> You need to know that the Psalms were the early hymnal book of the church. It's not just meant to be read, it's meant to be sung. Every situation, almost every situation that you find in life is written in the book of Psalms. Dr. Tim Keller wrote this very insightful paragraph. He says this about the Psalms. He says, Psalms anticipate and train you and I for every possible spiritual, social, and emotional condition. They show you what the dangers are what you should keep in mind, what your attitude should be, and how to talk to God about it, and how to get help from God when you need it. He says, the book of Psalms then is not just a matchless primer of teaching, but a medicine chest for the heart, and the best possible guide for practical living. In calling Psalms medicine, he says, I'm trying to do justice to what makes them somewhat different than the rest of Scripture. They are written to be prayed, recited, and sung to be done not merely to be read, we are, he says, in a sense, to put them inside our own prayers or perhaps, very important, to put our prayers inside them, inside the psalm, and approach God in that way, end quote. So it's about life, it's about prayer, it's about singing, it's reciting. Luther called it the mini Bible because it speaks from creation to fall to redemption to the giving of the law to the temple and tabernacle to the unfaithfulness that points to the Messiah all in the Psalms, the coming of the messianic, messianic redemption 
and renewal is, is in the Psalms. No wonder they are to be sung. No wonder they are to be remembered and, and recounted and meditated upon the whole counsel of God. And Psalm 25 is like nine other Psalms, Psalm 34 and some other Psalms, where Psalm 25 is what's called an acrostic psalm. Every verse in Psalm 25 begins with the letter of the alphabet in the Hebrew. It's done that way so you can remember. It's easy to remember, to be able to sing it and to remember this psalm. If you were Hebrew, I don't, but if you do, you can see that and you can remember it. I mentioned this once before. I had to learn the books of the Bible in order, all 66, and I couldn't do it. I I tried, and then I learned it through a song. I I remember it to this day. And all the kids were singing it because I kept putting it over and over and over again. But anyway, (laughs) truths that are anchored in the soul by singing them and learning them and how the Psalms point again to to, to the birth of Jesus and and say very important things about his birth and uh, and deals with things that we are facing today. And we'll see that in Psalm 25. So it's sung and recounted and meditated on. The second thing I want you to learn really quickly about Psalms is Psalms is what's called Hebrew poetry, okay? It's a poetic book, and they use a literary device called parallelism. I won't get into it too much, but I just want you need to know that, where parts of the verse are connected with other parts of the verse that, 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 that come together to show like repetition or restatement or progression, and different forms for the purpose of strengthening and reinforcing and developing the thought conveyed by the writer. So they're putting these verses together in different parallel forms. In English, we, use, we, we do things mostly by rhyme or rhythm or, or they sound alike. Hebrews do parallelism. There are three kinds. One is called synonymous parallelism where the verses are saying the same thing. It's synonymous. I have Psalm 120. It says, save me, O Lord, from lying lips and from deceitful tongues. It's synonymous. It's two parts of the verses coming together. There's antithetical parallelism where they're, they're contrasting one another. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, Psalm 1, but the way of the wicked will perish. You see the contrast? And then there's what's called synthetic parallelism. And you need to know, this is why you need to know this. This is why I had my, my Bible to before. Psalm 29, excuse me, Proverbs 29, which is Hebrew poetry as well. Verse 18 says this, 2918. This is why you need no parallelism. Um, 2019. Where there is no prophetic vision, or where there is no vision, people cast off restraint. And people say, oh, you know what? Uncle Jim had this great vision from God, and now, because we have no vision, anybody got a vision, and you know, we need to follow that vision. Now use that verse. Just read the second part of the verse. Where there's no vision, people are cast off. But blessed is he who keeps the law. See, the word vision could mean is, is prophetic word. And the second part of the verse tells us it's the law of God. It's not what you had for dinner that made you have some dream at night. It's the written scripture. Just follow the verse. Synonymous, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's synthetic parallelism, building on one another. Okay, so another synthetic parallelism is Psalm 29. It's a building case, ascribed to the Lord. O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. You see these, these verses coming together and building something. It's a staircase. Or Psalm 42.1, as a deer pants for flowing stream, so pants my soul for you, O God. It's building. That's important. It's very important because you, you have to rightly interpret Scripture and you don't want to get lost. So with all that said, turn to Psalm 25. 
I, I can't help myself. It's just, I want you to learn. I want you to interpret Scripture correctly. Okay, so three things. First, David's prayer to trust God. While he's waiting on God, he's, he's praying that he trusts God in prayer, okay? While he's waiting. We'll talk more about trust next week, but we want to hit it today. Secondly, David's promise of humility. You, you, you see posture of humility. You see this, this humbleness of David. And then finally, David's promise of salvation, which will lead us as he's, waiting for, as he's waiting on God, which will lead us into communion. So David's prayer, look with me to verse one. To you, O God, to, to you, O Lord, I, I, I lift up my soul. O, o my God, in you I trust. Let, let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. And you might be thinking, aren't we in Christmas? That don't sound very Christmassy to me. Right? Actually, the Psalm 25 is a psalm of lament. It's a psalm of lament. Lament means it's, it's a psalm of complaining, expressing sorrow, of brokenness, of hurt, of despair, of anxiety, of grief. That's a lament. There's a lot of laments in the Psalms. D.A. Carson rightly said, there's no attempt in Scripture to whitewash the anguish of God's people when they undergo suffering. We want to hide it. He says, they argue with God, people of God, argue with God, complain to God, and weep before God. Theirs is not a faith that leads to dry-eyed stoicism, but to faith so robust it wrestles with God, end quote. Read the Psalms. They're, They're pouring their heart out. They're pouring their heart out. And this psalm speaks of the difficulties of life. It's honest about the realities of what's going on. It is a psalm that looks at life even during the season of joy and peace and hope and observes that things don't always go the way we want them to go. That life doesn't always happen the way we want it to happen. There's not all this tranquility and peace in our life all the time. We're reminded of the brokenness of the world in which we live in. I believe it's a sober reminder of of the pain and suffering of this world. It's full of pain and suffering. In fact, the holiday season, if we're honest, brings many times the hurt and the pain to the forefront of our hearts and our souls and our minds. Does it not? David was a man of pain and suffering. David knew what it meant to suffer. David had enemies. There were external enemies and there were internal enemies of his soul. So, so while we're in the stores, it's all packed with nice decorations, beautiful and it's vibrant, songs playing, joy to the world, you know, all that stuff. You know, peace on earth, goodwill to men. Sometimes what we want to do, <laughs> we're caught in between singing and lamenting. And that's okay because God's people have been doing it for centuries, lamenting over brokenness. But, but let me tell you this, while, while we are lamenting, while we are Dealing with realities of life, right? Not, we're not in some psychosis, you know, uh, ignoring state of reality. While we're lamenting, God does not want us to be without hope. He does not want us to sit around doing nothing. For while David was dealing with his enemies and struggling eternally, he prays to God, right? He prays and he's reminded that he needs to, to trust God while he waits on God. Verse 3, indeed, none who wait for you will be put to shame. None. They shall be put to shame who are wantonly treacherous. What kind of parallelism is that? Antithetical, right? Contrast, okay? Just see, 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 you got to 
Pick both verses up. And this plea of, of waiting, he does three times in the psalm. Three times he says, I will wait on you, I will wait on you, I will wait on you. And I think he does it purposely, right? So he does it at the beginning of the psalm in verse, uh, verse 3. And then at the end of verse 5, lead me in your truth, teach me a way. Uh, for you're God of my salvation, I'll wait for you all the day long, verse 5. And here David's, when he says wait for you all the day long, he doesn't mean like, I wake up in the morning, I have this prayer and this need and this concern, I'm bringing it before the Lord, and now it's sun's going down. I don't get my answer. That's not what he means. All the day long means he has a posture, he has a, a, a continual, a, 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 a ongoing position of waiting on God in all of life. All the day long. And then after he just pours out his heart in this psalm, look at the very end, verse 21, with full assurance, he says, may integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait on you. Integrity and uprightness doesn't mean he's sinless, but in his meekness, in his honesty, in his repentance, in his sorrow, in his pouring out of his heart, in his desire to follow the lead, the way, to follow the lead of God, he can be assured as he laments, he could be assured that God will lead him. God will protect him as he waits on God. That's what he's saying. You see, waiting has, the word waiting in the Hebrew means eagerly waiting. All right, there's a difference between sitting in a doctor's office and waiting for your name to be called. That's not what it means. Well, the other day I was in a Honda dealer quickly for a few minutes and I stopped in there, and they, they said I had to wait. So I went into the waiting room, and there's seven people on the couch in the chairs like this watching TV. <laughs> you know, like robots. That's not what waiting means in the Hebrew. Waiting in Scripture means eagerly anticipating and waiting, confidently waiting on God. It's not passive-active. Waiting on God is hopeful. Waiting on God means trusting and waiting and confidently expecting God. That's why this word wait in the Hebrew sometimes is translated, I don't know what Bibles you have, as hope or, or look expectingly. You see, waiting and hoping are, are, are bound together like a strand of a rope tied together. But family, you and I will never ever wait on God if we don't trust him. You and I will never wait on God if we don't trust him. You may say, Pastor, I, I, you know, you don't know what's going on in my life. You don't know what's going on in my life trying to trust God. Okay, let's look at David's life. Verse 2, let not my enemies exalt over me. Verse 19, consider how many are my foes. Violent hatred, they hate me. Verse 20, oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame. For I take refuge in you. Now, theologians aren't sure exactly what time frame this was during David's life. David had enemies. David, even as a young boy, faced the enemy Goliath, right? He, he became a king, had many enemies. Even before he was king, Saul, which we're going to learn when we get into Samuel next, next year in January, had many kings. Saul tried to kill him. Even his own son, Absalom, tried to rise up against him and became David's enemy. He was a king of Israel, and he had many enemies enemies and you know what some of you have enemies some of you have enemies in your own family christmas morning christmas evening christmas dinner you got one eye on that roast and the other eye on your don't give them the knife you know what i mean i'll cut the roast i'm watching you you know what i mean but all kidding aside family feuds hurt 
co-workers, conflicts, work conflict with co-workers, school rivals. It's just plain people just trying to be, just, just try to, or just love to hate people. During the Christmas season makes life much more challenging, does it not? David's enemies had enemies, and David prays, though, in my enemies, even though I have enemies, I will trust you. And look at the next verse, verse 16. Look at the other enemies. That turn to me and be gracious to me for what? I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distress. Consider my affliction and my trouble. This Christmas season can be very lonely. And bring back certain heartaches, broken relationships, death of a spouse, friends, parents, grandparents, all kinds of things during the Christmas season. As David turns to trust God in his difficulty, he's praying. He is praying that his trust in God would not falter while he waits. In other words, waiting is vitally wrapped up in knowing, trusting, believing in God, in his person, in his work, and in his promises and his character. The ability to wait on the Lord stems from a confidence and focus on who God is and what God has done and is doing in our lives. It means confident in the wisdom of God. It means confidence in the love of God, the timing, the promises, the purposes, the power, and the understanding that God knows our situation. He says, consider my afflictions, O Lord, and my troubles. Trusting God while you wait on God means to turn to him in your pain. And continue to to trust him. Advent tells us that God keeps his promises. That God's will and God's promises will be done. The baby will be born to the Virgin Mary. And so we eagerly wait. We wait and we trust the good will of God. We don't often understand what's going on in our lives, but we know that we can trust God, that he's using our pain for our good, his glory, and our future glory. And I want to notice one last thing about waiting. Trusting waiting. Verse 4. Because it's not just trusting. It, it's, it's in the midst of waiting. You're trusting God, but you're also pursuing God. Look at verse 4. Make me to know your ways. Teach me your path, O Lord. Lead me in your truth. Teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For, I, for you, for you, I will or I wait all the day long. Waiting is actively trusting and pursuing God as well. And confidently living in faith, especially when time gets, when, 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 when life is hard. Or maybe I should say, especially when life gets hard. It's being secure in his love. Even when you seem, he seems distant. We're waiting and hoping for God to keep his promises. And all that's pulled together in a season called Advent. If you loved you're reconciled, you're a new creation, you belong to God. We believe those that God will keep. We believe that God will keep his promises. We wait for the fullness of the promise to be kept. Psalm 1 is kind of a reminiscent of this psalm. It says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. You see, it's easy to not trust, not follow, not be led, by God, when trouble comes. But God's people keep pursuing, keep trusting him as our ultimate treasure because the promises that will be fulfilled means that it is blessed is the man, blessed is the woman. And we pray, lead us, guide us as we wait. Now, what we need not do, we're gonna move on, but we need not do 
is I want to know your will. Let me reveal to me your truth, what's going on in my life. And, and when I see that or I know what your will is for that, I'll make that decision whether I want that or not. We don't want to do that. We don't say, you know what, show me and then I'll decide. There's a book, a Puritan prayer book called The Valley of Visions. And in it there's a prayer that says this, I bless you, O Lord, that you have veiled my eyes to the waters ahead. In other words, get me through today. Don't, I, I, I'll follow you. I don't want to know what that is. because I'm not. I, when I get there, you'll be there. When I get there, you'll have enough grace for me. That's a bold prayer. That's a bold prayer. When I, when I see the bend in the road, I'm going to follow you. Look, verse 10. All your paths, all the paths of the Lord are of steadfast love. I will follow your ways. I will follow your paths. I will follow your truth. You're the God of my salvation. I'll wait for you all the day long. I will trust you. Because of the hope of Advent, we know that God keeps his promises and our faith will not falter. We are trusting in God as we continue to wait for him. Now look at his humility. David's posture of humility. Verse six, remember your mercy, O Lord. Your steadfast love, they're from old. They've been from old. Remember not the sins of my youth nor the transgressions according to your steadfast love. Remember me. For the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright, verse 8, is the Lord. He instructs sinners. He leads the humble. What is right and teaches the humble his ways. Verse 11. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt. For it is great. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. In David's humility, he's not ultimately concerned about God's deliverance from his enemies or even his loneliness, but from his sin. From his guilt, both the sins of his youth and all my sins, verse 18. And David cries out and pleads and prays and and says, remember not my sins. Isaiah himself, the prophet, said, I am he, talking about God, who blots out your transgression for my sake. I will not remember your sins. Now, when we say God will not remember your sins does not mean he has some sort of amnesia episode. Like, ah, I forgot that one. I'm glad you reminded me. God is omniscient. He knows everything. He forgets nothing. That's not what it means. When we forgive someone, we don't actually forget. And it's not that we're we're able to recall the offense, but we choose to release the offender. Forgiveness prevents us from being trapped from dwelling on the past, and it is a releasing to take vengeance. And rather than treating us for our sin. What our sins deserve, God removes our sins from us as far as east is from the west, an an immeasurable distance. He doesn't hold it against us. Calvin writes this, for why should he ask the forgiveness of his sins by having recourse running back to the mercy of God? But because he acknowledged that by the cruel treatment he received from his enemies, he only suffered the punishment which he justly merited. He has therefore acted wisely, David, in turning his thoughts to the first cause, the first cause of his misery, that he may find out the true remedy, and thus he teaches us as an example, that when any outward affliction presses us, now listen to this, any outward affliction presses upon us, we must entreat God not only to deliver us from it, but also to blot out our sins by which we have provoked his displeasure and subject ourselves to his chastening rod, end quote. Calvin is not saying that everything that happens in life is our fault. What he's saying is when the dust settles, when, when the real issue comes to the forefront, 
We see what David's doing here. We're crying out for mercy. Don't give us what our sins deserve. Have mercy on me, O Lord. Verse 6, his covenantal mercy. Look what it says. And his love, his steadfast love. That's the Hebrew word hesed or chesed. I don't want to spit on anybody. Chesed, covenant from of old. His covenant people have his hesed. And the words love and mercy are actually in the plural. So you could actually look at it and say your acts of love or your acts of mercy. And David's posture of this humility while he waits on God stands on the bedrock of God's covenantal said love and mercy. Notice the contrast in these verses. Verse 6, your steadfast love from of old, my sin, verse 7, of my transgressions in my youth. In your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness and uprightness. You instruct sinners. So I'm a good and upright and instruct sinners. Verse 11. For your name. For your namesake, O Lord. Your holy, your glorious, your, your magnificent name. Pardon my guilt. For it is great. How, how can a good and glorious God deal with such wicked sinners? Hased. Hased. His covenant. There may be no more significant Old Testament description of how God treats and relates and works with relating to his people than the Hebrew word chesed. Sproul writes this. I argue that the best translation of this term is loyal love, which I agree. God loves his people genuinely, immutably, loyally. Both the love and the loyalty are, of course, tightly bound together, love and loyalty. That is, just as one cannot love capriciously, so one cannot be loyal without love. God is for his people and will never cease to be for them, end quote. That said, David prays that the Lord will deal with him not in accordance of his lack of loyalty, but on God's loyalty, on God's commitment to his own loyalty. God is a covenant-making God. God is a covenant-making God and a covenant-keeping God, Right? A covenant is this, this oath-bound relationship between two or more parties. We, if you're married, you're in a covenant of marriage. And in divine covenant, God sovereignly establishes his relationship with his creatures. He makes the covenants. And there, there are different nuances. I don't want to get into it this morning. We don't have time. But the divine covenant that God made with his people, we read about in Genesis 3, is God binding himself to himself by his own oath to keep his promises. Adam was in covenant with God and it was a covenant of works and that covenant, he failed miserably. And God steps in in the midst of that chaos, we read earlier, Genesis 3.15, and speaks about grace and chesed and makes a covenant. And then we pick up that same covenant in Genesis 3.15 with the covenant he makes with Abraham as the more fully understood or I, I would say more fully established promised covenant that he made with Abraham. That Abraham, you will have a lineage, you will have a land, and you will have the Lord himself will come from your descendant. And it was a promise made. And we see God entering into that promise by himself. Because if you keep reading the Bible and you keep reading it, you're going to see that it wasn't Abraham's faithfulness, nor his descendants, the faithfulness, the covenantal faithfulness, the loyal love is about what God has done. And the people of God were waiting. Waiting, waiting, waiting. And then God made a covenant promise with David of grace, that his descendant will, be, uh, will rise up and will sit on the throne of Israel forever. And God's kingdom will be reigned by this Messiah. 
with justice and righteousness. In Psalm 136, we're not going to go there, but jot that down, Psalm 136. Every single verse in that psalm ends with this. His hesed endures forever. Because of the Lord's hesed, he creates the universe. Because of his hesed, he rules it and his providential care over it. Because of his hesed toward Israel and the promise he made, he redeemed them out of Egypt. He brings them to the land of promise. He brings them through the Red Sea. Because of his hesed, if you read that psalm, the Egyptians were struck down and the Canaanite kings were destroyed. God delivered his people and the destruction of his enemies were the aspect of the Lord's hesed, his loyal love and covenant that he made. Even when God's people sin against him, even when God's people sin against him, there are times in scripture where they're crying out and calling on the unchanging chesed of God. In 586, Jerusalem, Judah, the southern kingdom, was destroyed. And the hand of God brought that destruction in. They were well aware of it. We never flit today, 2017, but that's the scripture. God disciplined Israel and brings in an army by his hand to destroy the southern kingdom. And it was Jeremiah calling on the unchanging character of God in the midst of seeing destruction, knowing it was of the Lord's hand, cries this out in Lamentations 3. The hased of the Lord, the steadfast love of the Lord, the loyal love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. David's posture of humility while he waits on the Lord is because he is trusting in the promise of God's chesed and that ultimately ultimately finds its fulfillment in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The fullness of the Lord's chesed is seen in the first advent, in, in the coming of Christ, in the birth of Christ, in the mission of Christ, his perfect life, his death on the cross at Calvary's hill. And there the true chesed, Jesus Christ himself alone was the only one to ever be truly loyal to the Father, even, even loyal to his enemies, never lied, cheated, or stole. But on the cross, he was treated as the covenant breaker and cursed for our sins so that we who are unfaithful, we who are unfaithful might be clothed in his faithfulness. We who are unrighteous may be rescued and redeemed by his righteousness. The Lord has said will never abandon us. Even in the midst of life's trials and tragedies, we may lament, we may cry, and we should to our loving Lord, but our confidence is that nothing in all creation can separate us from the loyal love, the chesed of God that he chose in us, chose us before time began. His loyal love has saved us, his loyal love is transforming us, and his chesed will bring us finally into the new kingdom. Into the new kingdom. Lastly, David's promise. How can he do this? How can he keep his promises? How could he, doesn't justice require condemnation? Yes. And the only sufficient answer to this dilemma is Christ, who satisfied the justice of God by bearing our punishment on the cross. His death satisfied the justice of God completely, allowing God to forget our sins and in love reach out to sinners and graciously forgive us and rescue us and save us. And the entire trajectory of Genesis 3.15 throughout all of Scripture comes to the promise of the offspring. 
That promise of that offspring is Jesus Christ. Genesis, excuse me, Galatians 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under law so that we might receive adoptions as son. The time has come. The promise made to Adam, to Abraham, and to David has come. And Jesus Christ is born into the world. We see in Psalm 25, verse, 20, verse 14, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him and make known to him his covenant. Oh God, my, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Our hope is anchored in that love of God as we rest in it. Three times again we see this word has said, this steadfast love, even in the midst of, of, of lamenting. He's remembering. He's looking forward to the promise of God that he would send that promise. The Old Testament closes. There's 400 years of silence. 400 years of silence. No prophetic word, no prophets, and God's people find themselves under the rulership of Rome. The New Testament opens with the Hebrews still anticipating, waiting, hoping in, looking for, the promise of God to send a savior. And just like in David's day, in the New Testament opening days, there were enemies. There were oppressions, there were struggles, there were difficulties, but there were those also waiting on God. But unlike David, many people were not waiting on God to, to have their sins forgiven. They were waiting on God to release them from oppression of Rome. And family, I will tell you this morning, the greatest enemy you face is not the foreign radical jihadist, or, or jihadist. The greatest enemy we face is God himself when he pours out his wrath on our sin. If you have not the redeemer and savior who died for your sins. With all the animosity going on today, we we like to point fingers. That's my enemy, that's my enemy, that's my enemy, this party, that party. Let me tell you, Jesus said this, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. God in his first advent, his first coming, is remembering his people's sins, but not to punish them, but to offer them grace, to offer them mercy and forgiveness and deliverance through Jesus Christ our Lord. And David's prayer, his plea, uh, promise and hope are answered in the advent. So even if David's foes overtake him, God is still faithful. David died, he did not see the Messiah, but he had faith in the Messiah's coming who would ultimately not remember his sins, but would pay for them on the cross. The Old Testament saints and the New Testament saints are saved the same way. One's looking forward to the Messiah and the other one's looking back to the Messiah. They look forward not knowing his full identity. We look at and we see who it is, is Jesus Christ. And we have a future hope because we know he rose from the dead. He's alive, he's coming back. That's how the Old Testament, uh, excuse me, New Testament opened up with this hope and this promise. And now we look back to the cross. Let's turn just these last two verses and we'll close. I want to tie this into the Advent. Luke chapter 2, verse 25. Hear the word of the Lord. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents, Mary and Joseph, brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him 
in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of everybody, all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and a glory to your people Israel. Drop down to verse 36. There was a prophetess named Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, and the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. And then, as a widow, until she was 84, she did not part, depart from the temple, worshiping, fasting, praying night and day. And coming up to that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. You see, Simon waiting for the consolation, that means the comfort of Israel, that there was going to be an inauguration of, of a king in a Masonic age, the coming of the kingdom. Jesus is that comforter. Isaiah tells us he is the Lord's Christ, as Simeon tells us. Simeon longing. Uh, uh, Isaiah 40, comfort, comfort your people, says the Lord. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her welfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. This consolation is coming. And, and Simeon's waiting, he's longing for the fulfillment, not the fulfillment to get us out of the rulership of Rome, but Simeon says, the consolation of Israel, forgiveness of our sins. Even Anna waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem, the city of God. Advent then is when God's remembers his has said his name is Jesus Christ and we enter into this advent season let's remember the greatness and the grace and the mercy of our god in Jesus Christ revealed in the midst of our enemies our inner conflicts our loneliness and even our circumstances so wherever you are this morning wherever you may be this morning whatever's going on remember god is faithful And God will lead you, God will guide you by his grace. We, like David, know that we do not deserve God's gracious love and guidance and strength, but one who has been forgiven of our sins. We can be confident that God is for us, not against us. And we trust God, we wait. We look to his leading in confidence because of who he is and all that he's done. And in this advocacy, remember that God does not hold our sins against us. That Jesus took the shame, the guilt, and, and, and the judgment that we deserve on the cross. Justice was upheld, and God's loyal love has said, has been extended to you as sinners. We wait on him. As the band comes up, you guys can come on up. Look at this verse with me. Look at this verse with me. I, 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 as, I was, as I was studying and preparing, I believe the Lord put this on my heart because this speaks of the waiting of David. Look what it says, 1 Peter 2. When Jesus was reviled, hated by his enemy, I put that in there, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he was all alone. He had enemies and he was all alone. He did not threaten but continued entrusting himself I'm waiting, I'm, 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 I'm faithful to you, Father. Just, I'm walking with you, I entrusted himself. To him who judges justly, he, Jesus, I put that in, himself bore our sins on, in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now return to the shepherd and overseer of your souls as he guides and leads us, as he guides and leads us. Jesus trusted the Father in the midst of enemies and loneliness And he dies being confident in what the cross is and what the cross will do as he is then returned to glory at the right hand of the Father, ushering in the people of God in their redemption. That's what this table is about. 
It was the long-awaiting time of Israel that the Savior would come, born of a virgin, live a perfect life, and die an atoning death, rising from the dead. The bread represents his body that was broken for you. The cup represents the blood that was shed for the forgiveness of your sins. If you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are invited to the table. The band's going to play, and what the Scripture says is we are to confess our sins. We are to repent of our sins quietly before the Lord, and then we are to take communion, celebrating his body that was broken, his blood that was shed for our sins. And Christ Christ is present in this communion, not literally, but by the power of his spirit. And he is in heaven. The spirit of God is inviting us to come to strengthen our faith, to, 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 to trust in him and to wait on him, knowing that he is good and he is for you and not against you. Come and take communion if you, belong. If you don't belong to him and you're struggling, we want to pray with you. In fact, this is what we're going to do. Some of the pastor elders that are here this morning, we're going to be in the back during communion. And we, if you need prayer, Come. We'll be in the back praying, and we'll pray with you as you take communion together. Father, thank you. Thank you, Father, for this Advent season as we just kind of, everything going on in life and the difficulties and trials and and just the busyness. Lord, we just settle down and just look to you. We wait on you. We trust you. We love you. We we thank you. And we look at the cross and we see (laughs) if you have given us so much, your son, Would you not freely give us everything we need? So, Father, help us through this time, and may we rejoice in the Savior as we partake of communion together in Jesus' name.